In business, do you need to be courageous? Because the difficult things you have to do. Now, is being courageous in business, is that just good business or is it good ethics? Or is it both? And so that's the beauty of virtue is that it, it doesn't allow this false separation. That being good in business means both being good at business and being a good person in business. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show presented by Ave Maria University. This podcast is sponsored in part by Annunciation Circle a community that supports the mission of Ave Maria University through their monthly donations of $10 or more. If you'd like to support this podcast and the mission of Ave Maria University, I encourage you to visit avemaria.edu join for more information. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today I am joined by Dr. Andrew Abella, Professor of Marketing and the Dean of the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America. Welcome to the show. Pleased to be here. Thank you. Right. So it's a great honor to have you on the show. And I'm really excited because one of the areas uh, that I think we haven't yet addressed very much on the Catholic Theology Show is the whole area of Catholics and business, you know, um, business and ethics, uh, Catholic social teachings. These are so important. Uh, and, you know, uh, you've written a book, uh, are you co-editor of a book called uh, A Catechism for Business? And, you know, maybe just to start with, I think the, I don't know, almost maybe kind of the, the gut level popular objection, right? Which is that, you know, Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John were fishermen, but then when they met Jesus, they stopped being fishermen, right? And Matthew was a tax collector, but when he met Jesus, he stopped being a tax collector. So one, it seems like the Christian vocation is a call to leave behind business and take up you know, this, this more dedicated life to God. Uh, and then secondly, I think a lot of people, you know, I think you mentioned and uh, when uh, the Bush School of Business was uh, founded, that you wanted to keep, you wanted to put ethics in the marketplace, right? And so, I mean, in some ways, right, isn't that kind of like almost an oxymoron, business ethics, right? That just, you know, to be in the marketplace is, you know, uh, you know, it's a rat race, dog eat dog, right? You know, I mean, you know, it's just about the profit motive, right? So what would you say to those kind of both maybe the Catholic objection, but then the other objection, which is if I'm going to be ethical in the workplace, I won't be able to, I'll lose, I'll fall yeah. behind. Yeah. Well, we can start with that one. Uh, um, the, 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 when, uh, whether business ethics is, a, is an oxymoron. Um, so I had a, a professor, a, my, my doctoral work was in, in business ethics. I had a professor, Edward Freeman, um, who used to say, not only is it not, an oxymoron, business ethics is a pleonasm. So the opposite, right, of an oxymoron. Um, you can't have business without ethics because business requires trust, right? If every every business transaction had to be perfectly scripted to cover every, every eventuality, the transaction costs would be such that the mark, the economy would grind to a halt, right? So, so really, when you think about successful businesses, they're based on the fact when you buy something for some, from someone, it's because you trust that brand name or you trust that person to give you what they say you're going to buy, you know. And, and if you have to count on the law and lawsuits to enforce, you know, the, making sure that every tube of toothpaste I get isn't poisonous, you know, or every apple I buy is fresh, you know, so on, it, it, it just wouldn't go anywhere, you know. So, so, so that underlying need for some level of trust in, in the economy um, means I say that not I say it's not it's not an oxymoron. Um, that said, you know people do cheat, right? People do do bad things. We do see greed. You know, we do see um, aspects of the market economy that we don't we don't like. But I remember years ago there was a huge debate within, of all places, the Society of Archivists. And some of the people in this society wanted to expel corporate archivists. So Coca-Cola, for example, maintains a full-time archivist, right? Because you know, there's all these famous you know, ads and so on that they've had over the years. So, so they keep this. And they say, well, no, we shouldn't really have them because they can't be true professionals if they're working for a corporation. They're going to be tainted, you know? And so they, um, 
it's kind of like the judgment of Paris. They invited me to come and give a keynote speech at their annual meeting to try to be the arbiter of this big debate about whether corporate archivists belong in this august society. I came down firmly on the side of, well, of course. And I pointed out that business is not the only place where you find ethical infractions. You know, with sports, government, you know, not-for-profits, whatever sphere of life, you find sin. You know, you find ethical infractions. It's not, it's not, a, it's not just a domain of business, you know. So, so um, no, it's, it's, it's a fallacy. Um, and, uh, in fact, the longer-term successful businesses are ones that are honorable, you know. Yeah, that's really well put that uh, the right commercial exchanges require an element of trust and uh, and even right within the workplace, you know, it's the reliable person, the person who can be trusted to uh, to carry out the work and the duty, uh, the work and the duties that they were asked to do is also uh, you know, that element. Um, I think it was, was it Jack? Uh, I can't remember who was the famous uh, business author, Jack Welch, maybe. He used to run GE. Yes. Yeah, he used uh-huh, to run GE. Uh-huh. And I think he was the one, he had the book or something like Leadership from the Gut, or I can't remember, something like that. But he, but he would talk about that idea that leadership simply is character, right? That you you can't have, leadership requires that you have character because people have to trust you that you're going to do what you say you're going to do and that you're not going to constantly change or manipulate. Now, obviously, of course, there may be bad leaders who get in positions of power, but they're seen to be bad leaders because they are not trustworthy. They don't change. They, they, they change. They don't follow through. They say one thing and then they say the next and therefore, that creates disruption within, uh, you know, a corporate environment. Um, so we're not saying that right business places always run well; uh, they often don't at all. But so do does every other human endeavor. Exactly. It's often right, you know, filled with kind of sin and pride and lying and cheating. But but the more, in a way, that it conforms to this ethical standard, the more successful in a way, the business is going to be both internally and externally. Yes. And, and um, so you asked before about, you mentioned that when we started, so the, our business school, first school of business is 10 years old. So when we started, we talked about kind of ethics in every aspect of the curriculum. And that was different from other business schools where they would try to do that. But the way they did that is by having, say, a mandatory ethics course or a mandatory class once a semester for every course, you know? So, you know, today is Tuesday the 21st, and we've been talking about finance for several weeks, and today we're gonna talk about ethics and finance. So what were we talking about before is the question, you know? So, so So before we started the business school, we had a small department of business where I was teaching at Catholic, and there's a fascinating incident where I had some, I was teaching a class on marketing and the impact of marketing on society. And we watched a video that was critical about Walmart, about what happens when Walmart comes to town kind of thing. It can, can be very damaging to small communities in some ways. And so watch this video, had a very rich discussion. Then some of the students from that class went to another class and was a strategy class. And by coincidence, this was not by design, I wish I could say it was, but it wasn't. Um, they had to present, uh, they make a presentation on Walmart strategy. And so they did that, these same students, and their professor knew that they were coming from my class. And so during the Q&A part of the presentation, she said, I happen to know you're coming from Dr. Bella's class where you were talking about the kind of ethical issues with Walmart. You just gave a presentation on their strategy and you said nothing about those ethical issues. How come? And the students without batting an eyelid said, oh, well, that was the ethics class. This is the strategy class. That sort of separation, you know? And so then the question you have to ask is, and when they graduate, which class are they going to be in? You know, we have taught them, right? There's the ethics class and then there's the strategy class. And what you're doing now in business is strategy and therefore it has nothing to do with ethics. And then typically the way the ethics training goes is you have to be aware, you have to be sensitized to identifying when an ethical dilemma is arising and then you have to try to deal with it. But it's always this this separation as if there's the ethical content and the business content. I mentioned Dr. Freeman already. He was very formative in my in my own education. He had f- he had 
formulated what he called the separation thesis. The thesis that one can logically or sensibly separate out business content and ethical content in, in business, and then spent his career trying to demolish that thesis to show that it's false. And I, I think he's right that it is false. Um, and I think the surest way to show that it's false is to understand business in the light of virtue. And so that's what we have come to do over, the, over our 10 years. We speak less and less about ethics and more and more about virtue. Because if you think about it, a, a virtue is simultaneously practical and ethical, right? So in business, do you need to be courageous? Absolutely, because the difficult things you have to do. Now, is being courageous in business, is that just good business or is it good ethics? Or is it both simultaneously, always inseparably, you know? And so that's the beauty of virtue is that it, it doesn't allow this false separation. That being good in business, when you're talking about virtue, means both being good at business, you know, being successful, profitable, and being a good person in business, right? Being ethical. And there's no way of teasing those apart. It's always both. And I think that's just really, really important. And when we understand business that way, the nonsense about business ethics being oxymoron just disappears, right? So, Well, that's a really a beautiful image, I think, to articulate how so many people, even in schools or in practice, think of business and ethics as separate. Uh, and yet that really makes a, a, leads to a real misunderstanding of what business is and a misunderstanding of what ethics is, right? right. Ethics is not solving, uh, you know, an ethical case. It's actually just being a decent human being in the midst of the world. And business, of course, is involved in connecting human beings, connecting right human persons in a way that uh, is really necessary to provide the services and the goods, material goods and food and all sorts of different things, you know, that we need. Uh, so, you know, I think it's just kind of fascinating. I feel like in some ways when we talk about, because it has this personal dimension, I think your own background is also kind of interesting. It might be interesting to our listeners and viewers. Right now, you were at the University of Toronto as an undergraduate. You went to work for Procter & Gamble as a brand manager. I think you've worked at times as a management consultant for McKinsey & Associates. Uh, you continue to be a marketing consultant. So you, your area is marketing specifically, but then you, you went on to get a master's in an MBA and uh, also then eventually did a doctorate in really business ethics, I guess yeah. is what they call it, yeah. at uh, University of Virginia. So could you just tell us a little bit about how did you get interested in business and then how did you get interested in integrating, seeing this ethical dimension to business and then seeing that that ethical dimension is also really a Catholic dimension of faith? So I, I've been interested in business as long as I can remember. When I was 10, I, my, so my dad used to, I grew up on the island of Malta in the Mediterranean, Good back then, good Catholic country. And my dad ran one of the two banks on the island. And he used to bring home these magazines, International Banker, International Management, and so on. I would read them cover to cover. I love those. I was 10, 11 years old. I, I also would read books in his library. One of my favorite was Parkinson's Law. Maybe you've heard of it. Parkinson's Law is that work expands to fill the time available. And uh, it was several years after reading Parkinson's Law that I realized that it was actually a spoof management book, not a real management book. <laughs> Very funny, but at the time I just read it as if it were a real thing. Anyway, so always was interested in that. Um, I went to, uh, I, I, my undergraduate was in computer science and my plan was to go work for IBM. But I graduated in 1987, which anybody in the audience is old enough to remember, was a big recession. And so IBM wasn't hiring that year. Neither was Procter & Gamble, but they, I guess, to remain, not get rusty or whatever, they came in and interviewed a few people anyway. And where they would hire 20 people every year uh, for their Canadian business, because I was at the University of Toronto, they weren't planning to hire any, but they hired me because I, somehow we hit it off, you know. And so I was the sole hire that year, which is a little odd in terms of onboarding, but very good for your promotion prospects, right? Because there's no one else to compete with. Um, it was a good experience, learned a lot, um, and then left there though to go to business school. And I must be the first or among the few to have a conversion or reversion experience on my first or second day of business school. So I was raised Catholic, fell away from the practice of the faith. And on my, it was literally the first day of my class um, in business school, 
I decided to come back to the faith. I'd been on a search to figure out what is, you know, what are my values in life and so on. And 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 um, I think it was the pressure of being in this. I, I was left Canada, went to Switzerland. The school, the Institute for Management Development, is one still one of the top schools in the world, business schools in the world. And it was, you know, the small group of students from all over the world. There were sixty students, thirty different countries, you know, and kind of. It felt like a high-pressure situation. Two years before, one of the students had committed suicide because there was so much pressure, you know. So um, anyway, so I went to my first confession in, I think, 15 years um, around that first week um, and ended up loving the business school experience, uh, still in touch with classmates now 30 years, this is ago, you know. Um, went to work for McKinsey, and the focus of the MBA program was international business. So with McKinsey, I got many assignments. Or I worked in, in Russia and South America, Central America, Europe. So it was really fun for a young single guy. But always this kind of question growing. But well, as a newly returned to the faith Catholic, how am I supposed to do this? You know, halfway through my MBA program, this was in 1991, uh, Pope. John Paul, St. John Paul II um, released Centesimus Annus, right, his landmark encyclical on the 100th anniversary of Rerum Novarum, the encyclical on the economy. And I, I remember this was before the internet, right? So my mom sent me a copy of the encyclical. Here, read this, you know, good Catholic mom. And uh, I read it and kind of scratching my head a little bit. And then over the years, just trying to figure out, like, how, what does this look like? What does this mean, you know? Uh, I was working for a time for a client based in New York, um, as McKinsey consultants, we were living in the Waldorf Astoria. The, uh, the the client's office was in the Rockefeller Center, so I'd walk every day and pass by St. Patrick's Cathedral. So I started going to early mass, daily mass there at seven. Um, the great Cardinal O'Connor was would often say and preach a short homily. And there was Brentano's bookstore. And I one time walked by and saw a mountain of books, uh, a new release by Michael Novak who used to teach here, right, I also at the Bush School, um, uh, called The Spirit of Capitalism and the Catholic Ethic. So I read this book and I thought, wow, people have actually done work on what it means to be Catholic in business. You know, so I'm continuing to think about it. And then um, I was given an assignment at McKinsey to go uh, lay off 10,000 middle managers from a major bank. And that sort of, that was kind of like the wake-up call. It's like, okay, well, what? What's a Catholic to do in this situation? Is this right? You know, it was made even more personal by the fact that my dad, maybe two years before, as a middle manager now of a Canadian bank, had just been laid off in his late 50s with really no prospects of another banking job in his life. And I was thinking, and I saw what that did to him. You know, that's not, not a good thing, you know. In his case, God bless him, he landed on his feet, eventually ran a couple of not-for-profits, and now has been, for the last 20 years, retired and painting. He's a, a very good painter. Um, but anyway, I, at that point, I had just seen him just get laid off and thinking, okay, so I'm about to do that 10,000 times, you know. I couldn't, so I just quit. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving, and then what are you going to do? I don't know. I'm going to go study theology. So I, I moved from Canada to Washington, D.C., to the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family, um, because I knew that David Schindler was there, who's since passed away, teaching courses on the social doctrine of the church, the encyclicals of John Paul II, spent a year there, and that was completely transformative. So we read all the social encyclicals, exposed to this treasure. It's like, why, did, why don't more people know about this? You know, While I was there, I met a beautiful young lady, and we got married. So that, that was truly a transformative year in both career and family terms. And... Um, so I, I, I actually went back to McKinsey after that year. I just did one year of graduate work and came back with a much clearer vision of what I should do. I worked for them another couple more years and then went off to, to do my doctorate thinking, okay, probably a career in, in, biz, in, in, in academia, you know, teaching business. And that was, got to Catholic U 20 some years ago. And then 10, ten years Later, so they asked me, "Do you want to start a business school that we focused on this?" You know, so that that's not as short as I would have liked, but gives you an idea yeah. of the trajectory of my career. No, it's very so, helpful, yeah. and it really, you know, part of that begins to kind of show the integration of both the desire to work, but then the desire to work reflectively, and the desire to work then with in the discovery of of your faith, and mm -hmm. then think about wasting. How do I integrate that? 
right? And so these different layers. And I think, you know, this is something that, you know, the, it, it's, it, the, the faith illumines everything, but it often allows things to be as they were, but to be seen more clearly for what they truly are in a lot of ways, right? Creation is creation before we know it's creation, so you can already kind of learn a lot about creation. And then when you discover, wait a second, God created this, it becomes even more beautiful. And so that sense of like work being something that's noble and interesting. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, there, there are many people that just that that today are, you know, looking for a sense of meaning and purpose in their work. And I think a lot of people really struggle to find it. And I think part of the reason why is that the meaning and purpose is most fully seen when we see it as part of a larger story of our lives, right? That it's part of it's part of what we we can give to one another. It's part of what we you know uh, receive from our families and go from our families, and then even receive it from God, right? In these different ways. So, you know, how do you see then? Uh, how would you describe? people who see a little bit of, who are on board with their faith, but see a little bit of a tension between work and faith. It, it, it's understandable in, in a couple of ways. One is because I think you can say correctly, objectively, that sort of the contemplative life is the highest, you know, a life of, of service, you know, to the poor and so on would be next, you know, and then the sort of mundane buying and selling, making and doing uh, of commerce would be sort of below that, objectively speaking. But subjectively speaking, it depends for each one of us, it depends on our own calling. You know, not all are called to be contemplatives, thankfully, because <laughs> who, who would cook, you know, and who would bake? And I guess some contemplative orders do that, right? Um, but we are all called to a different vocation. And for those who are called to the, the vocation to business, that's your path to sanctification or part of it, you know. So we try to teach that the purpose of business is the service of others. Now, it should be a profitable, financially profitable service because if not, you would be a not-for-profit, you know. Uh, but somebody has to make the wealth that will fund the not-for-profits and the church, you know. So, so it's, it's, there would be you no know, government programs and there would be no not-for-profits, but for the fact that somebody is making profits and then can ch charitably or, or forced, forcedly in terms of taxes, you know, um, share that, share that wealth, you know. So, so, so I think um, the, uh, it's important not to fall into the trap of thinking that somehow business is, is degrading, you know, that, that it would be better if I, you know, so especially somebody coming, kind of graduating from school, it'd be better that I go into a not-for-profit. No, it, it's better that you go find the place that's going to be the best fit with your talents. And if that happens to be as an entrepreneur or working for somebody else's company or whatever, then that's what you should do. Mm -hmm. the, the question then is, but how do I sanctify that experience? You know, um, I think first by having a view of what you're doing as service, whether you are serving your clients externally, you know, or serving others within the company. You know, so there are many service departments within a company that help just help other people within that company. Um, we have a sales program in, in the Bush School that's been phenomenally successful. And I think it's because the people who graduate from it come with this great mentality of serving others, you know, being helping others. Um, and so that tends to work really well. So that, that service mentality, I think, is important. Another is just seeing it as an opportunity for growing in virtue. So we're talking about virtue before as kind of underlying business um, as a good way. But thinking about how, okay, how am I, so in, in marketing, for example, how am I growing in the virtue of honesty? How am, how am, I, be, how am I working at enticing people to, to buy my product without in any way being dishonest, you know? But I, we talked about the virtue of courage, you know, it, virtue of friendship, you know, friendliness, working. Many business friendships are friendships of utility, but that doesn't make them bad. You know, they're still friendships, you know, so, so it's still better to be friendly in your relations with others. Uh, so there's, there's so many ways to do that. The, the one thing you want to avoid is if you find that you're in an institution that is irretrievably corrupt. And there are some businesses like that. They always end badly, you know, and we just have to look in the news and see what, what's happened recently. Uh, with a couple of the, you know, the Bitcoin and, and, and crypto businesses, for example, 
if you find you're in a, a situation like that, you, you, I think it's wise to leave and go work. Uh, it, you don't have to be looking for an institution that is uh, run by saints, you know, populated exclusively with saints. Firstly, because you won't find one, right? Yes. Not even our church can make that claim, right? No. Um, so, so um, but you want to find a place where people are at least trying to be decent to each other, you know, and being and being responsible and being honest. And there are many businesses like that. Um, and then you just work on on growing in virtue within that, you know. That's great. Well, thank you very much for uh, great insights there. And I think that really does help because I think many people do struggle with that, that sense that, um, you know, maybe they would be holier or they'd be closer to God if they'd, you know, weren't in this field. And, and I think that subjective sense of that kind of like my own personal response uh, St. Jose Maria would sometimes uh, say that basically says you have to let go of this kind of mystical wishful thinking that, you know, like, it's like, oh, if only I'd become a priest, I would pray more. No, it just means you'd be a priest who didn't pray. If you're, if, if you're not a priest who's not praying, you know, so, so I think that's a, a really beautiful image and, and that, that call to see business as a service. So we're going to take a quick break. And uh, when we'll come back, I want to talk a little bit more about this. I'd love to dive into a little bit more of this question of marketing and then also in some of the things that you write about, you talk about Catholic social teaching and these themes of like subsidiarity and solidarity. And I'd love you to unpack those because uh, I think those are really rich ideas that have kind of kind of like they're, they're no longer in, I think, a lot of people's imagination today. And I think that's a real um, that's a real loss. So we'll come back in a couple minutes. You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University and sponsored in part by Annunciation Circle. Through their generous donations of $10 or more per month, Annunciation Circle members directly support the mission of AMU to be a fountainhead of renewal for the church through our faculty, staff, students, and alumni. To learn more, visit avemaria.edu join. Thank you for your continued support. And now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Catholic Theology Show. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today I am joined by Dr. Andrew Abella, the uh, Dean of the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America and uh, also Professor of Marketing and a co-editor of a volume called The Catechism for Business. So uh, delighted to have you on the show today. Thank you. Good to Thank be you. here. And uh, so, yeah, we're talking a little bit about this idea that some people see a little bit of a tension between the religious, between a religious life and, uh, and the business life. And obviously, there is a vocation to the religious life, which is a beautiful thing. Uh, the monastic, you know, for people to enter monasteries or convents or to live in religious orders, this is a beautiful part of the church. And um, you know, the church right holds that you know those who take up the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, obedience. This is right a, a kind of a, what Aquinas calls a sure and higher path to holiness. But nonetheless, right, all the baptized are called to holiness, right, as um, always been taught by the church. But you know, Vatican II uh, reemphasized. So if all the baptized are called to holiness, and many of the baptized are called to work then work must become a means of sanctification, right? Um, and this has been uh, recovered a lot in the 20th century. Uh, I said I myself have, you know, really was inspired by the teachings of St. Jose Maria Scriva, founder of Opus Dei, who really emphasized that and would often speak about the unity of life. You have to be the same, the same human being in whatever you're doing. But so, you know, it's not like, but if you're going to be a plumber well, and you're a Catholic plumber, that means, well, you better make sure that your plumbing works, right? There shouldn't be leaks. And if there are, you ought to fix them. You know, these sorts of different things. So you do your work well. Uh, that is that. And, you know, it even reminds me of uh, C.S. Lewis had an essay called Learning in Wartime, which he wrote and uh, he actually preached it in 1939, just as uh, England was entering wo uh, World War II. And he's at Oxford teaching. And so he says, what are we doing teaching? And well, he says, well, uh, one thing is you need to have something, right? Why, why are we fighting this war? We have to be fighting the war for some meaning and purpose that is that is higher than the war. And we're not going to find that from the war. So you have to find it from something higher. But he also says that even in war, you spend half your time, and he was in, he fought in World War One. He said you spend a lot of your time in the trenches just sitting around playing cards or sitting around 
you know, obviously it was awful in many ways, and he writes about that, but you can't make all your life martial in a way, warlike, much of life in, in you know, in, in that saying. He says, even, of course, many of the things you do when you become a Christian are very similar to the things you did before you were a Christian, right? You still read, you teach, you know, in his case, you write books. In his case, you know, you, you make food, you eat food, uh, you do a lot of these same things. And so he says the power of a war is that it takes all of these activities and it orients them all to an earthly end. But he says the power of the gospel is it takes all of our earthly activities and it orders them to God. And so like 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Um, Lewis even says in his memorable way that, right, you know, a mole ought to dig for the glory of God. And uh, so whatever you're doing, because, and you know, and I have a friend, uh, one of our Ave students who is actually joined a monastery in, in France. He's actually the cook for the monastery. So he cooks for 60 monks every day. And so like, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not a monk, but I know a little bit about what it means to cook for a lot of people. And it's uh, just kind of interesting. So you realize, whoa, we have to learn to integrate all of these realities that are good, that are noble, uh, and whether or not that's plumbing or finance or teaching or accounting, right? These different services that, as long as they're honest professions, uh, you know, that they can be offered to God. Uh, and so we can do them for the glory of God. And I think when we recover that vision, we're again, it's all of a sudden like, what were we thinking? You know, like, what were we thinking separating out? You know, obviously, yes, you know, occasionally for people who are called to the religious life, it's important to have that distinction. And there's much in the world that is corrupt and overly sensual and, and overly sentimental or just confused and we need to turn away from. But once we are you know, trying to live in an integrated way, then, right, all the work we do, whether it's dishes, earlier today I was painting a bedroom, you know. I, I hope that when I'm painting a bedroom, uh, I'm not I'm not stepping outside God's glory, yeah. right? I'm not stepping outside God's good creation and his recreation of things. So, you know, John Paul II, who talked about Centissimus Annus on 100 years of Ram Navarum in 1891, Leo XIII, really talked about kind of a, a nobility of the business in a way that like there's a good that business can do uh, even in, within an ethical order. And, and he also wrote Laborum Exercens, I believe is the right way to pronounce that Exercens, but uh, uh, basically on the dignity of work. And so could you just maybe talk a little bit more about recovering the sense of this unity that we're not, we want, we don't want to separate business and ethics, but nor do we want to separate faith and work. So how do we kind of integrate our work into our faith? I think a, a good place to start is by looking at each kind of business enterprise and saying, what is the good that that entire enterprise is seeking to do? And it's usually one of the transcendentals, right? Truth, beauty, goodness. Um, uh, so, so if you're a journalism enterprise, for example, then you're seeking truth to, to convey truth. Um, if you're a manufacturing company, then what kind of goodness are you bringing into the world? You know, are you making shoes or you're making cars, right? And, and always keeping that as the, the North Star. This is the good that we're doing. We have to do it profitably, you know, um, there's complex debates now about whether the purpose of a business is to maximize its profits. I, I, I think that's a. It's, it's a tricky, a tricky question because with all a lot of the sort of woke capitalism issues that have been coming up, um, have confused the issue. I, I like to think in terms of the purpose of the business is to serve others. Uh, the way it's done, the form of the business. So, if you take it a different, you know, uh, the, the formal good is 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 that of a profit-making enterprise. You know, so if you don't serve people well, you won't make profits. If you don't make profits, you won't be around to serve them. You know, so so it's not an either-or. Um, but but if you're always looking to that good, you know, then that brings a certain sort of integrity to the to the enterprise. At the next level, then we can we can bring in. You mentioned before the principles of Catholic social doctrine that I think are very relevant to 
to, to running a business. At, at the Bush School, we tend to highlight four, so that the notion of human dignity. So everything we do must honor human dignity, the dignity of our customers, the dignity of our employees, of our investors, and so on. Um, then the two principles of solidarity and subsidiarity. So solidarity that we should be caring for others and subsidiarity that we should allow decisions to be made as close to the point of impact because that's consistent with human dignity, not just because it's more efficient and not even primarily because of that, but pr primarily because to be a human being created in the image and likeness of God right, is to have your autonomy and this kind of that includes decision-making autonomy. So it's more in accord with human dignity to allow employees to make decisions that they are competent to make rather than to have to refer everything to a, to a boss. So you're following those principles. And for the first several years um, of our business school, we very much focused on making sure that those principles were integrated into everything that we taught. But at a certain point, we start to realize that without virtue, principles are useless, right? Or next to useless. Yeah. Because it's not enough to know the principles. You have to be in the habit of living them. And the virtues then allow you to live the principles. So here's an in interesting, I think, somewhat original insight. The virtue of forgiveness is absolutely essential if if the principle of subsidiarity is going to work because if every time an employee makes an innocent mistake you come on down on them like a ton of bricks forget about subsidiarity they're not going to try anything new anymore they're just going to keep coming back to you with questions because otherwise they'll get beaten up if they make if they veer slightly off from what, what your vision you know so i think the, the virtue of forgiveness i think is important to that for example you know so so there's different layers, starting with what's the vision of the good that we're doing, then the principles, then the virtues that kind of allow you to, to live that. I think if you do all those three things, it's really a very natural way to integrate your faith with, with your business. Um, obviously, in addition, you have the, the sacraments. You want to, If you can get to Mass every day before the day begins, but usually it's hard to get out in the middle of the day if you're, if you're in business. Um, we here in academia at Catholic schools have the blessing of several masses, in my case, in my own building, you know, so, so, so um, but if you're in a commercial enterprise, chances are it's a little bit more difficult, but do you find time to, you know, pray the rosary at some point and take a break in the day, you know, make sure you get into confession on a regular basis that, that then all supports your, your living the faith in, in business, but, but virtue allows you to live the faith throughout every moment of the day, not just, you know, while I was at mass and while I talk about the integrated life, right? Because the, the, we know that when we live the virtues, we're not just um, doing it of, our, of ourselves, right? The, the gifts of the Holy Spirit animate the, the cardinal virtues, you know? So, so my courage is not just my own courage, but it's also Christ's courage when I receive the virtue, the gift of, of fortitude, for example, you know? So that's a, a beautiful way, I think, of integrating it all. Yeah. So let's just take a kind of uh, maybe another kind of concern that people have. I think people, you're in marketing uh, and marketing, I think, is one of those areas that, I mean, a lot of people go, a lot of students go into it because I think they think they'll get a job and these things are important. Uh, but it also, other people think marketing is contributing to our society's kind of somewhat crisis of overconsumption. Um, and you know, that, that we, you know, we already have, we know we have the capital sins. We struggle with envy. We struggle with avarice, greed, um, kind of lust. We struggle with all these different things. And it seems like the marketing industry is so good at helping me. And even on our phones, right. Helping me like, I didn't even know I wanted that. And then all of a sudden it pops up and now all of a sudden I'm like, oh, well, maybe I, maybe I should buy a new pair of shoes or maybe I should buy something for my wife or maybe we need more stuff, right? So it seems like marketing in a way is inflaming. We already have a strong desire for more that's we, than we need. Um, so what would you say to you know, that, that objection and, and how do you think we can really maybe recover an authentic vision of marketing that really is integrated with the virtues and integrated with our Christian faith. In, in some ways, marketing is the discipline, I think, that is hardest to, 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 um, to bring to Christ. Um, other disciplines within, um, within business, so for example, accounting, is very clearly a profession. 
so it has its its professional standards and 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 those help you understand the good that you're doing and the norms kind of guide that interestingly market research which is a subdiscipline of marketing is also very much professionalized like accounting they also have their norms and their ways of doing things so that's easier i think to be noble there the problem with marketing itself um is as as you as you pointed out it re- really uh, you can find examples i think playing to all seven of the deadly sins you know there's just inflame as a inflaming lust inflaming greed envy and so on the the way back is to understand what is the purpose of marketing and you can find it in the name right the purpose is to make a market to bring buyers and sellers together right that is the purpose of marketing it's not to invent needs or wants right it's just to facilitate uh, the creation of a market or the establishment of a market um and so that involves telling the story of your products in creative ways to kind of attract people's attention but it it it's it's tough because it's very hard to regulate and therefore you are counting on the integrity of the marketer right to 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 convey that message say you know buy our stuff because we think it will be good for you you know but also to to make sure that what they're selling is in fact good for the what they're saying is good for the customer is in fact good for the customer and um yeah so it, it it's a challenge but i said but that, that that is the root forward yeah. i think is to understand the kind of the making of a market the other way in, in in which it falls apart is is this sense of limitless uh demand you know um and in fact aquinas himself um talks about the the dangers of trade so not just marketing but just trade in general because compared to a traditional sort of householder homesteading lifestyle where there are natural limits to your needs you know to to you you when you have enough food and you have enough stored to get through the winter and enough to increase to take care of your children then you're good you know but but when as a trader you can always make more money right you can always trade and so he said but but this Aquinas is very clear about this he says it doesn't make trading evil it just makes it neutral uh you have to be aware of those risks and then make sure that your trading activity is ordered to something good right um and the good in that case is typically to bring the goods that you're trading in make them available to people who might not otherwise be available and to make profits for yourself as a trader you know to to and then you use those for for some good purpose taking care of your family but also charitable and in, investing and so on so the all of that to say this the the drive of marketing to always want to sell more and more and more is not even a problem specifically with marketing it's a problem with the modern economy itself where we expect the stock market to go up forever and ever you know and therefore we expect companies to sell more and more um and therefore consumers have to consume more and more you know um so it, the the question has to come back to ourselves and say what do i expect from my investments what do i expect from my own life you know so so it it is um it is a particularly challenging time this sort of consumerist era that we live in challenging time to be a person of faith and i think um it calls on us to be practicing mortification at all times right mortifying our eyes cuz some of the posters you see are really horrific you know and mortifying our stomachs our you know, our desire to sort of buy things we're constantly are constantly being inflamed and we need to just sort of yeah. learn temperance you know so yeah so maybe it's one of those things where right the abuse does not take away the use so the fact that things are overmarketed doesn't mean that marketing is evil right marketing is also telling the story of a product telling the story of a company right um marketing a podcast right telling the story of a podcast and because i if if we have a service that we believe is helpful to people then it makes sense also that we want to tell that story and right you know if we have a car that we you know think will help or that well we you know we have a car factory so we we have to employ people and we want to make a car that's solid and reliable and well so to keep those people employed we have to help people come to know that this car is for sale right so I I think it's almost is a necessary part of 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 commerce uh that you that you know and and in that sense right it seems to me it's it is one of those things just in and of itself is is a good uh and the fact that it can be exaggerated and probably is 
the majority of the time in our contemporary society doesn't mean that we ought not engage in it, right? But but we have to engage in it with a sense of recognizing that, you know, we have a society that that is erring on the side of overconsumption. Uh, and so, you know, what can we do to try to maybe, you know, try to think about the ways that we market things that are genuinely helpful or at least, you know, market them in a way that is um, truly trying to connect to the person as some sense like, hey, here's something that you might be interested in. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, maybe just uh, as we're kind of getting to the end of our time, I I guess, you know, what, what are some, you know, maybe for people who are working today, I, I did see, I read in a 2010 article that you wrote for Comunio, you talked about, I think it was Pope Benedict's the 16th, uh, Caritas and Veritate, Charity in Truth and the Market Economy. You spoke a little about relational anthropology, that we're persons for other persons in communion and that this principle of subsidiarity uh, and some other themes that we've spoken about, you know, what are some kind of practical things that you think, you know, people could use to actually kind of be better businessmen and women and to do their business work better and in that sense also do it with greater ethical integrity? Um, yeah, so it, think of uh, maybe a, a Trinitarian view of, of, of commerce, if you will. So in the Trinity, we have the Father and the Son, as two, person of the Father, person of the Son, and then we have the person of the Holy Spirit, who is the relationship right between the Father and Son personified. At the risk of, of trivializing, but just so we're talking by analogy, in every business transaction, there's the buyer and the seller, but there's also that relationship between the two of them. And so in every encounter, whether you're working directly with a customer or working with somebody else in your company who is sort of a customer of yours or you are a buyer of theirs or a customer of theirs, you know, uh, think in terms of not just the transaction, did I get fair exchange kind of for what I, what I gave, um, but also the relationship. Did every encounter, did every transaction strengthen the relationship between me and that customer or me and that person I work with, you know? And so be, be considering the health of all the relationships that you have, particularly with those people you work with frequently, your boss, your subordinate, you know. And, and I think that helps understand kind of what we're really about here. Because we talk about human dignity all day long, but, but in practice it means when I'm working with you, is the way I'm working with you building up our relationship um, or is it tearing it down, you know? Yeah. So I, I think that is a helpful guide. Yeah, and I think, I think even it's not only how do I treat the people with whom I work or the people with whom I interact, but even the transactional element is part of how I treat them, right? If I say I'm going to paint the house for somebody and then I paint the house well, then, you know, that is just as important as, um, you know, giving the person a handshake. You know what I mean? That like, so even the transactional elements become part of that relational element. If I'm going to give my boss a report and I take the time to do it well and in a timely way, then that's kind of a, that, that gift is not only relational, but it also has its own integrity. Yes. So I can also take a joy, whether or not I'm a construction worker, right, or, you know, or an academic writing articles in the work because it is a gift. So it's not only it's not only that we add in this, you know, trying to be polite to cashiers, which is a great thing to do, but that also that the, the actual work that we do, the gifts that we exchange are also meaningful. Yeah. And, and the more the, the kind of, we, you know, we take pride in our work kind of in that simple way. And uh, I think that really is a neat aspect. And then situating that within that relational development, which you're right, is part of our communion as persons created in the image and likeness of the Trinity. Yeah, I think it was Dorothy Sayers who said there were no shoddy tables coming out of a certain workshop in Nazareth. You know, it's like Joseph and Jesus made beautiful tables, not chairs apparently, if we believe the Passion of the Christ, but, 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 um, whatever they did, you know, is, 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 is part of um, continuing in God's creation, right? So, so yeah. as we participate in that, we want to keep that front and center. Yeah. That's great. Well, um, you know, uh, Professor Andrew Abella, thank you so much for being on the show. Before we close, I want to ask you three quick questions. Uh, what's a book you're reading? Right now, I am reading Boys in the Boat. 
um, about the 1936 uh, gold medal winners. Yeah, the movie's coming out, so I have to, ah. it's been on beside my bed for a long time. And The Ascent of Mount Carmel by uh, um, John of the Cross. That's my spiritual reading right now, and it's powerful stuff. Yeah, that's great. And uh, what's um, what's a practice you do on a daily basis that helps you find meaning and purpose amidst your work? Wow. Um, well, I think I'm blessed to have a job where I feel like I'm meaning and purpose, like pretty much whatever's going on. But I do have started keeping, I have started keeping a gratitude diary. And I find that reflecting at the end of the day as part of my evening prayer and actually writing down the things that I'm so grateful to our Lord for in that day has, has helped too. Yeah. And, uh, what was a, did, did you ever have a belief about God? Um, that was false and that what was the truth you later discovered? Um, I think I had probably like many a sort of childish belief about God as an angry God waiting to catch me out, you know, like make, ah, gotcha, you know, say, and he's not like that, you know, which is thank God <laughs> that he's not like that, that God is not like that. So, yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, that's beautiful. Well, again, um, Professor Andrew Abella, founding dean of the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America, uh, a catechism for business, of which he is a co-editor, is uh, published also by the Catholic University of America Press. Uh, if people want to read more, they might find that of interest. Uh, and um, any listeners of the Catholic Theology Show can get a 20% discount uh, with um using the code uh, CT10 or CT20. I'm not 100% sure at the moment, but one of those two. But thank you so much for really kind of offering an inspiring vision of this call to integrate business and ethics, uh, to integrate and implement Catholic social teaching in our lives through subsidiarity and solidarity, and to really discover this unity of life, right, where our, our work fosters um, the practice of our virtues, right? And, and our virtues direct the practice of our work, all of which comes under our relationship with uh, Jesus Christ, uh, really through faith, hope, and love. Amen. So thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.